I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. <laughs> to, 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 to have you? It is June 15th, and I have a fantabulastically good, it's a word, show for you this week. <laughs> uh, we're going to start off with Reverend Robert Merciless's very first segment episode for his new segment, The Satanic Tradition. I am very, very excited about this segment coming out, and it's going to take the uh, first spot here in the podcast where we traditionally have the satanic-centric portions. That makes kind of sense, right? Um, Yeah, no, this is a really great segment. Uh, A lot can be learned from this man, and uh, I'm hoping that this goes for a little bit so that uh, he can share some of his passion of uh, Satanism and the history of Satanism with you and... (laughs) be honest with me too because i think it's cool shit um so yeah that's episode one the history of satanism now the next segment is another agent provocateur with uh darren deicide hosting that bad boy this is going to be episode 13 and darren never disappoints so this is going to be a good one so uh check that out there in the middle portion and at the tail end we're going to go back a little bit old school style we're going to actually do a creature feature now this is from a show (laughs) and Aaron I'm using it appropriately according to you uh Derek so this is a Netflix series that um I've been watching and I'm going to talk about a little bit interesting yeah I don't know there it's a little bit weird and uh (laughs) I think I want to share the weirdness with you, the audience. So that's the entirety of the show this week. I do hope you enjoy it. Uh, before we dive in here, so my uh, my son, Gret, <laughs> such a weird thing to say. Oh shit, I forgot I was going to do an Adam's Road Rage. You know what? At the very tail end, I'm going to tack on an Adam's Road Rage because I do have one ready. <laughs> I just totally just forgot about that. Uh, I do have one queued up here ready. Um... Yeah, so my son is graduating sixth, or has graduated sixth grade, and it's weird because I, when I was in sixth grade, I don't remember ever having a like graduation. That that's weird to me. But having graduated uh, high school and college, I understand what goes into a graduation, and so I was a little surprised that at sixth grade you would have that. Um, so I went there and my wife and I were sitting in the front row, very, you know, proud parents. And you have to sit through every single stinking class. Just every, you wouldn't think that an elementary school would have this many classes, but they all have all of their awards. And most of them are like participation award type stuff, which is really lame. I don't understand why they do this at all. Um, it's just like this feel good for the kid, but it actually doesn't really mean anything. So I don't know how feel good it really is. We're just sort of 
overinflating their egos. So when they actually have to do something this challenging and they fail, they're going to feel completely depressed because it wasn't super easy because there wasn't someone helicoptering right over them telling, oh, great job. You can do it this way. Oh, you run so blah, 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 blah. It's all a lie. The cake is a lie, people. <laughs> Did you get that reference? Um, okay, so uh, graduation, right. So I show up to this thing and... Uh, you know, you gotta support your kids, even if it's ridiculous. So I show up to this thing, and I'm sitting through all these stupid awards that these really retarded teachers are giving to their even more retarded children. Uh, and then they finally do the, you know, like handing out the certificate of graduation for sixth grade. It's so weird. Um, and so we're clapping, we're taking pictures, and we're like, woo, Gabriel, ah, you know, just excited for him. Um, and then. They do like, <laughs> it's like a photo slideshow of the year. So instead of doing like a yearbook, for, and this is for sixth grade. I, this never happened to me in sixth grade. So they do like this photo slideshow on a big screen, like, you know, like a theater screen in front of everyone um, of just random photos of the kids throughout the year, kind of like a yearbook would do. Um, to music. And so the kids are all clapping to these top 40 you know, songs playing behind their images and like they're screaming and hollering and there's a lot of Latin kids and and I bring it up because they're much more vibrant as far as their behavior than the traditional vanilla white kids are. Like <laughs> any school that like growing up because it was the area was much whiter <laughs> when I was coming up, uh, less minorities. Um it was very bland. So, you know, if there was an assembly, you shut the fuck up and you just did the assembly. You know, you just watched it and you left or you ditched and, you know, whatever. Um, my son's school is very much, uh, he's the minority. And so when, like, a teacher's picture comes up, all the little Latin girls start screaming, and there's so much, like, screaming everywhere about the teachers, about each other, the other students, and, you know, what the group popular kids were as soon as they came up, everyone was like, ah! like screaming at a, at a school, like, like, this is a graduation, and they're acting like it's, I don't know, like, like, the first day of summer, which it wasn't, I mean, they, they still had things that they had to go through. So it was weird to have such a huge celebration and just to experience these kids freaking the fuck out. Like, they're gonna... <laughs> this is sixth grade. They're gonna go into seventh grade and realize, oh, shit, I got, like, seven or eight classes or however many classes they have, and I have to walk around all these... This was horrible. Why, you know, and this is where the depression, the scholastic depression kicks in. So this is where the drugs, this is where the gangs, this is where the uh, violence starts creeping in and then if you're a girl and that was if you're a guy if you're a girl then there's the drugs and then there's the sexuality and the guy is constantly like assaulting you or or trying to assault you the other girls shaming you and and just the the real wonderful little tidbits that lead up to the hell that is high school uh this is the kids first exposure so they're they're thinking they're like oh i'm so grown up and adult and look at these wonderful memories that i'm gonna have of sixth grade do any of you remember anyone from sixth grade and if you do you either have a wonderful fucking memory that i would envy to have or you just like have no life like 
you're wrapped up in your childhood classmates way too much because <laughs> they mean nothing with the rest of your life and should really influence you zero amount like you should not be thinking of those so you know point being like this is a meaningless step for these kids and yet they're being treated as if it was like college graduation and so it lasted a really really long time and I'm just sitting here trying to keep my mouth shut I don't want to speak out and just stand up and yell at the top of my lungs what is wrong with you people why are you doing this in sixth grade come on like, that's what I wanted to do. Just walk up to the principal and just smack her across the face. Like, you are setting these kids up for failure. What you should be doing is like... <laughs> Actually, I just thought of this. This is a really good idea. This is what you should do. You should show all the horrible things that happened to you in a in an almost like Scrooge-esque montage. Uh, you know, like a... Um, uh, <laughs> what is that called? Driver's Ed crash montage like these are the effects of of driving uh while you were drunk or distracted or you know without your seatbelt or whatever it is speeding you know this is what happens to you. you should do that for high school so that you're preparing them for the realities of what is to come rather than celebrating the meaningless shit that has already happened like i think you would be doing your kids a much greater service if the goal is to celebrate and prepare now i like i get you know it's a school year and so you want to sort of have fun but it's sixth grade it doesn't mean anything it's literally like the last of the retarded years of scholastic experience and it's the beginning of the difficult years so why would you celebrate the retarded years you you know you celebrate when you've achieved something okay so um <laughs> at the end they're doing a, they do a dance party a fucking graduation a dance party and so they have these top 50 or top 100 hits or whatever it is you know songs i know i don't i've never heard of any of them um and they're like dancing around the kid as like one song comes up and the kids are all screaming like crazy and they're all having fun and the, the teachers are dancing with the kids and they're like doing these group line dance type things it, it was so insane watching this i i just could not fathom how this is appropriate behavior in school and i know some of you are thinking oh you just want it to be like it was when you were a kid when when you got smacked with the ruler or you know you didn't know your teacher's first names or you didn't want to engage with your creepy ass teachers but here they're they're all like dancing like it's like the wonderful dance party and like someone's sleepover or something so so weird so that happened <laughs> And it's tough as a parent because you have to, you totally have to support your kids no matter what. You know, you always want to be honest and realistic with them, but support them in what they want to do. Uh, and so I'm like, you know, great job. I'm so proud of you. You basically just breathed. <laughs> like, that's what it takes to get into the next grade. It's just not be dead. Like, you can pretty much just not die and you will get to the next grade like i don't it, it's not really something worth celebrating in any way but you know clap on the back big hug i'm so proud of you <laughs> hope he never listens to these all right um and on the meaningless 
celebrations. Let's talk about Father's Day. Yay! <laughs> so for those of you who uh, have chillin', <laughs> chillins, have, uh, I don't know, mini slaves, I guess you could call them. Now, for those of you who are parents, fathers in today's case, happy Father's Day. Again, pretty much if you just don't die and you breathe, you can... <laughs> You don't have to be a good father to be, and here's the thing, like, what, are we just celebrating mediocrity at this point, and we're just like, greatest dad ever, and yet every single dad gets the greatest dad ever, how can we all really truly be, there should be like a rating system, like, if you, if you showed up to your kid's sixth grade graduation, that's ten points, okay, let's do a, let's do a point system, um, if if you've uh, supported them in their scholastics and helped them with their homework and and coached their soccer ball, I'm doing all the stuff that I've done so that I get the most points. Uh, coach their soccer ball game teams, um, and you you put them in these classes that they say they extracurricular courses and stuff that activities that they say they want to do until they actually do them and they realize that it's all work. Like no matter what you do in life, it it it's work in the beginning. Like, and even perpetually throughout, if you want to improve. So, uh, I don't understand why, you know, you would think that they would learn after a few years of doing this stuff. And so, you support them in those things, you get extra points, uh, you know, you celebrate their birthday, you get them a cake, you don't beat them, uh, you keep them fed with clothes on their back and a roof over their head. These are all things, you're an active part of their life, you get extra points. So maybe we should do a rating system like that to say, okay, well, you know what? I'm in the top thousand, so I get a Greatest Dad t-shirt. Uh, you're in the top hundred, you get the Greatest Dad mug. You're in the top ten, you should get like a like a cake, a dinner, and a BJ. Definitely not from your kid, but you know, from your girl or your man if you're into that. Uh, and then like you're the top. If you're the number one dad, then you're that's the only person that gets the number one dad mug. Like that's it. So it actually means something. You know what I mean? Like it's a, guys will be sitting at work with their greatest dad mugs. They're like, yeah, top hundred. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a good dad. And then that one douchebag comes in. You know the guy with like the corduroy pants? Who <laughs> was like the button-down plaid with the sleeves buttoned, tucked into his corduroy pants. And he gets the number one dad because he literally has zero life outside of his children. And everyone's just like, that motherfucker. We, <laughs> I'm going to stab him in the lunchroom. Like, I, I hate the number one dad. Like, everyone aspires to be the number one dad, but no one really wants to put in the time. And so when the dude just walks around, he's all peacocking in front of everyone else at the coffee coffee shop or whatever. <laughs> shop. Shoppa. Shoppy. Um, yeah, I think that would be a good thing, okay? So maybe we should start this, everyone listening. Don't just let your kids give you a number one dad because you're not. Let's be honest, you're probably mediocre dad at best, and some of you listening are horrible fathers. So just be like, you know what, I, I appreciate the gesture, child of mine, but this is a lie, and so maybe if I put like top 1,000 above father, then maybe maybe I can wear this, otherwise just get me a tie. Do, do me a favor, give me a tie. So those of you who are longtime listeners know that I've been complaining about not getting a Star Wars mug that I've asked for forever. Like I've, I'm always like every time someone's like, "Oh, what? I don't know what to get you. What? What could I get you?" I'm like, "Give me a Star Wars mug." I've, I don't own a Star Wars mug. I love I, I love Star Wars. I would love a Star Wars mug. 
for years I've been saying this. Years I've been saying this. Nothing. <laughs> not a not not a one mug ever. And then today, today it happened, and I almost cried because <laughs> I finally I have my Darth Vader coffee mug. I was so excited. It was the greatest Father's Day ever, simply because they listened. <laughs> like, how hard is it to listen? But they never do. And then this time they did. It was wonderful. And I don't... Here's the thing. Like, Mother's and Father's Day to my family, it's, it's really not a big deal. Like, I call my parents and say, well, Happy Mother. Thank you for keeping me alive. Because that's kind of all you did. Is not kill me. Not actively try to kill me. So, I'm proud of you. It's like the sixth grade graduation for your parents. Like, oh, I'm so happy. You did such a wonderful job. When really you just emotionally scarred me for most of my young adult life that I had to work through. <laughs> I mean, that's the reality of it. So I don't really know what we're celebrating here. Uh, so I, you know, I call them. But like for my wife and I, it's not really like, it's not a big deal to us. You know, I, our birthdays, big deal. A handful of holidays, big deal. Father's Day, Mother's Day, eh, eh. <laughs> not, not so much. And so we try to be practical. And so when I did get that mug, man, it was like so cool. <laughs> I got a Darth Vader mug. It was awesome. And it was a, like a really nice looking one too. So they took a little effort, which was nice. It was nice. So I guess I'm going to have to not beat my family for a while. <laughs> it's going to be tough, but Star Wars mug is worth it. Darth Vader is worth not beating my Wife and kids. Yeah, and maybe if you didn't beat yours, you would have gotten one too. Yeah, think about that. Think about that in the future. I don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about. All right, it looks like I've been yelling for, wow, a very long time. And I'm going to be yelling at the very end of the show. So if you stick around for the tail end after the creature feature, prepare yourselves. There, there is a little bit of screaming involved. I had a bit of a breakdown reliving this experience, this moment that you're about to share in. So let's start the show off right with the satanic, very first episode of the satanic tradition. I'm looking forward to this. Enjoy. This segment of the Nine Cents Radio Podcast is The Satanic Tradition. I'm your host, the Reverend Robert Merciless of the Church of Satan. In this part of the podcast, we examine the history of Satanism. It's a history of art, magic, politics, superstition, fear, rebellion, and liberation. All elements of what I call the Satanic Tradition. This first segment of The Satanic Tradition is an introduction to the history of Satanism. In it, I would like to lay a bit of the groundwork for future segments by covering a few basic overview topics. First, I'll talk about the pivotal role played by Anton LaVey in the history of Satanism as a religion. Next, I'll give a few of some of the subjects that might be addressed in future segments of The Satanic Tradition. Then we'll talk about the two reasons to study satanic history. And finally, I'll end with one example of the many treasures to be unearthed through the study of the history of Satanism. Modern Satanism as a religion really began on April 30, 1966, when Anton Sandor LaVey founded the Church of Satan. 
before this point in history there were virtually no real organized groups explicitly honoring Satan in a religious context and certainly none established and published a system of philosophy and ritual that endured. LaVey not only established a new religion which has lasted for half a century now, he fundamentally changed the use of the terms Satanist and Satanism. Before LaVey, virtually no one ever referred to themselves as a Satanist or referred to their own religious or magical practices as Satanism. Of course, history is replete with instances in which a magical or religious practitioner referred disparagingly and negatively to what others were doing as Satanism. In most all cases before LaVey, the use of the terms Satanic, Satanist, and Satanism were negative terms implied to libel, attack, or condemn the practices of others. LaVey not only embraced those terms, but compiled and published a comprehensive system of thought, philosophy, and ritual to form an enduring new religion of Satanism. This had never been done before. Some historians have claimed that witch covens gathered in the Middle Ages to honor Satan. The actual evidence for this is quite thin. The proceedings of witch trials are unreliable, and there are no artifacts, no witch coven documents, etc., as evidence. So the claim of large organized covens of witches gathering to honor Satan in the Middle Ages is likely a false assertion. Likewise, some historians have claimed that black masses were practiced in the late 19th century France by large organized groups of Satanists as depicted in Joris Carl Huseman's novel La Basse and in the various accusations hurled at each other by competing occultists of that period. Again, there are strangely no documents or artifacts to support such an assertion. No membership rosters, no non-fictional first-person accounts or uh, of witnesses or participants. No ceremonial artifacts. Nothing. So here too I suspect that the claim of the existence of organized satanic groups performing black masses in 19th century France is probably false. 300 years earlier there does appear to have been some rituals very peripherally honoring Satan performed by Catherine Lavoisin and her Catholic priest buddy, the Abbe Giborg, as a magical money-making scheme, did that constitute religious Satanism? I don't think so. But we'll likely talk more about Lavoisin in future episodes. Several 20th century officers have reported on the existence of a group called Our Lady of Endor Coven, Ophite Cultus Satanus, in Toledo, Ohio, run by a barber named Herbert Sloan. While the group did exist for a period, Sloan died in 1975 and his coven was never heard of again. He produced no enduring documents, organization, or thought. So for practical purposes, his coven had no lasting effect. Most of the authors who wrote about Sloan's coven reported his claim that it had existed since 1948, before the Church of Satan. 
the available evidence does not support any such claim. Anton LaVey formed the Church of Satan in 1966 and garnered nationwide press coverage throughout the year 1967 with newspaper and magazine stories of a Church of Satan wedding, baptism, and funeral rituals. In contrast, the earliest documentation of Sloan's coven is a memo from Sloan to a fellow Church of Satan member dated June 3, 1968, well after the nationwide publicity. It made the claim of organized satanic religious practice for decades, but there's not any documentary evidence of this. The oldest public document is a Delito Blade newspaper article dated December 4, 1968, which reports that Sloan sent a critical letter about the book The Black Arts to its author Richard Cavendish. That book was published in 1967. So it is entirely possible and indeed likely that Sloan saw the nationwide news coverage of LaVey and only then began his magical and ritual practices centered on Satan as a bit of copycat operation. I have been through the archives of the Toledo Blade newspaper and found no coverage of Sloan or his coven before 1968. I've attempted to locate persons in Toledo who could confirm the coven's existence before this point and have found no one. Sloan claimed to have corresponded with Gerald Gardner, the founder of witchcraft in Britain in the late 1950s, but no such correspondence has yet been found in Gardner's archives. So, for assertions that Sloan's Lady of Endor Coven predated LaVey's Church of Satan, it appears to be a claim without evidence. I know of only two people in history who are reliably documented on the record before 1966 using the terms Satanism, Satanist, or Satanic in a positive way to refer to themselves. These were the Polish-German political writer Stanislav Przybyszewski in the 1890s and the occult sex priestess Maria de Naglowska in Paris in the 1930s. They explicitly and overtly embraced Satan as a positive heroic symbol for liberation and pleasure and independence and they described themselves using Satan's name. Przybyszewski referred to himself as a Satanist. De Naglowska referred to herself as a satanic woman. So far as I know, they were the only people in history to do this prior to LaVey. There are no others. That is the fact so far as I can determine it. If you have any evidence to counter that, call me on it. If you want to know more about Maria de Naglowska, you can read my article, Maria de Naglowska, Satanic Sex Priestess of Paris, in Old Nick Magazine, volume number three, issue one, from the spring of 2013. You can also read the Wikipedia article about her. I wrote almost all of that too. For now, my point is simply that from a historical standpoint, Satanism as a religion began in 1966 with LaVey. He created the religion of modern Satanism with an unprecedented level of original thought and insight unmatched by anyone before him, period. But it is important that we understand the history before this point because LaVey did not create the religion of modern Satanism from thin air. He drew from the long history of human expressions about this mythical figure of Satan generated 
in roughly 5,000 years of religion, magic, literature, art, philosophy, and psychology. Many of these previous historical elements LaVey mentioned explicitly in the Satanic Bible, or the Satanic Rituals. The lore of the Knights Templar, ceremonial magical groups like Golden Dawn, the Enochian Keys transcribed by John Dee, the Black Mass scandals of France, lore about satanic practices inside the Freemasons, the libertine party boys of the Hellfire Clubs of Britain, the dualism of the Yazidi, and the psychology of Carl Gustav Jung. There were also some historical elements used by LeBay, but not cited explicitly. These include the Egyptian goat of Mendes, the left-hand path concept of the tantric cults of India and Tibet, even some magical symbolism from the Jewish mystical practice of Kabbalah. LeVay pulled together all of these threads from history and wove them together to create the utterly new religion of modern Satanism. Before that point in 1966, Satanism, that is, the positive depiction of Satan as a heroic character, symbol, or actual potent cosmic entity, had existed only in fictional literature, political, symbolic rhetoric, and a few cases of magical practice. The genius of Will LeVay was that he brought these elements together with a few elements of Christian lore about Satan and supposed Satanist, and LeVay created an actual religion for actual Satanists. This was the utterly pivotal place in history that LeVay played. In future installments of the Satanic Tradition here on Nine Cents Podcast, we will explore many of these Satanic elements of history. I do hope you will join us. So, why study Satanic history? There are two reasons. First, to set the record straight. We need to know the facts and to be able to discern lies from truth, baseless claims from the actual evidence, so that we can respond when history is distorted by those seeking to promote a false narrative in order to push their own agenda. Knowing the facts will let you set the record straight. Second, to capture some of the magic of history. With my exploration of the history of Satanism, I have encountered some satanically inspiring stories and fantastic language so full of romance and mystery that it can be incorporated to enhance the magic and majesty in our own practice of Satanism as a religion today. For both uses, it is very important to be able to discern between the facts of history and the romantic myths of history. In our day-to-day -day lives, we Satanists ignore superstition and mysticism and are instead guided by the facts and realities of the material world around us to make well-informed decisions about the successful conduct of our lives. But the Satanist understands the human psychological need for ceremony and ritual, and thus, within the confines of the ritual chamber, indulges in a bit of fantasy and imagination to conjure up the emotional excitement and empowerment of magical engagement with the dark satanic force of the universe. As Anton LaVey has pointed out, while other religious adherents may believe their gods are real and powerful at all times, the Satanist only pretends this to be so within the context of satanic ritual. So, 
In order to fuel the emotionally powerful fantasy of sorcery within satanic ritual, we can look back into the mists of history. We can use some of both, the facts and the myths we find there, to strengthen our magical emotional narratives in the ritual chamber. This is not completely new. Sorcerers throughout history have compiled magical books or grimoires which either contained or were claimed to contain ancient wisdom secretly passed down through the ages. As humans, we tend to endow the past with a mystical, numinous, sacred quality. If it's old, it's magical, right? So, I will close out this installment of the Satanic tradition by reading a bit of devilish poetry by the French occult uh, writer Eliphas Levy in 1861 as an example of the sort of gem buried in history that carries a bit of satanic magic. Now, in actual fact, Le Levy was no Satanist. His work was largely an attempt at white magic consistent with at least an open-minded practice of Christianity. Even so, in 1861, in his book The Key of the Great Mysteries, Levy included this bit of poetry honoring Lucifer. O oh, Lucifer, voluntarily and disdainfully thou didst detach thyself from the heaven, where the sun drowned thee in his splendor, to plow with thine own rays the unworked fields of night. That concludes this installment of the Satanic Tradition here on Nine Cents Podcast. Do join us for future programs. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian, and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome to Agent Provocateur! I am your host, Darren Cronkite. Don't worry, I have not descended into the schizophrenic hole my guidance counselors warned me about in high school. I assure you, I'm still the delicate kind of crazy you expect from me. But I'll admit that I'm whipping this together a bit on the fly because I'm feeling a bit like Mr. Cronkite, given the breaking news. You see, this was a very eventful week for the United States' endeavors in the Middle East, and there's nothing I revel more in than I told you so's. If I told you so's were jello, I'd fill an inflatable pool with it in my living room and take on any American that identified itself as the conscientious electorate. That's how much I like it. And as many of you who follow this segment know, besides the ones that send me angry emails of indignation about how much the truth hurts, I have been consistently saying that anyone who knows and studies history knows that our escapades in the Middle East are miring us into a situation that is not only a costly battle with no end, but we are looking at increasing the risk of terrorism and losing the hearts and minds of the very people we claim to be fighting on behalf of. This week, ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, 
pushed a major offensive into northern Iraq, overtaking Fallujah, Tikrit, and Mosul from the Maliki government and advancing towards Baghdad. I have been reporting on the situation in Syria, and how I believe that further U.S. meddling in the Syrian civil war would embolden the jihadi elements that were opposed to the secular Ba'ath Party. I base this upon history. You know, that thing that the average American refuses to study. I argued that we are on a perpetual Middle East merry-go-round, and that what was transpiring was a pattern with an outcome that would certainly compromise American standing and American lives domestically and abroad. I argued that we've chosen untrustworthy allies whose ideals were diametrically opposed to ours, that in the process of trying to stop jihadism, we were creating the impetus for the proliferation of it by not uniting with secular governments just because they were nationalist or socialist. This means that our foreign policy stance was being tailored with special interests in mind that had undue influence over our government and, and that we, the American citizen, would pay the costs. Well, the bottom line is... I am right. God, I love those words. What began as a fringe extremist movement in Syria has now, thanks to U.S. instigation and tacit support, expanded into a full-fledged movement to create a new state across the border of Syria and Iraq. This Wahhabi-influenced movement went from a ragtag lot of militia-like amateurs into a sophisticated army trained in subversive guerrilla tactics. Prime Minister Maliki has openly accused the Saudi monarchy of funding this organization. Douglas Ollivant, a former army cavalry officer that worked on Iraq, has repeated a sentiment that other analysts have expressed. He credits the experience they garnered in Syria for their improvement. He says, quote, They were great terrorists. They made great car bombs, but they were lousy line infantry. And if you got them in a firefight, they'd die. They have now repaired that deficiency, end quote. Olivant credits the civil war in Syria for their striking improvement in battlefield ability since the Iraq war. Quote, you fight Hezbollah for a couple of years and you either die or you get a lot better. And these guys just got a lot better. According to an International Business Times article, upon taking over Mosul, Mosul's central bank was raided by ISIS to the tune of 429 million U.S. dollars, making them arguably the richest jihadi organization in the world. You do the math. 420 million U.S. dollars will buy a whole lot of jihad. U.S. embassies in Iraq are clearing out, and although they aren't scrambling for dangling rope ladders from helicopters, Hanoi is definitely on high alert. This situation would not have precipitated had the secular totalitarians not been subverted. Good old-fashioned Soviet-style dictatorship kept the situation in line. Saddam even had the fashion sense with his fluffy Stalin-esque mustache. Yeah, sure, I'm all for American ideals, but the critical descriptor there is American. Let the rest of the world sort its own problems out. But our subservient politicians couldn't keep it in their pants. So here we are, many lives lost, many more to come, and one more I told you so under my belt. Okay, so maybe I'm a bit more confrontational than Mr. Cronkite. I'm sure he would have communicated everything I did in a sweeter, sager way than my provocateur approach. Mr. Cronkite had that silky baritone that could rock you to sleep over the world's troubles. So, allow me to get in touch with my inner Walter Cronkite for a second here. Oh.
We have been too often disappointed by the optimism of the American leaders, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, to have faith any longer in the silver linings they find in the darkest clouds. They may be right that Iraq's spring offensive has been forced by the jihadist realization that they could not win the longer war of attrition, and that the jihadists hope that any success in the offensive will improve their position for eventual negotiations. It would improve their position, and it would also require our realization that we should have had all along, that any negotiations must be that, negotiations, not the dictation of peace terms. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Iraq is to end in a stalemate. This summer's almost certain standoff will either end in real give-and-take negotiations or terrible escalation. And for every means we have to escalate, the enemy can match us. And that implies to invasion of Iraq, the use of drone strikes, or the mere commitment of 100 or 200 or 300,000 more American troops to the battle. And with each escalation, the world comes closer to the brink of cosmic disaster. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic yet unsatisfactory conclusion. On the off chance that military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions, in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate. Ladies and gentlemen, this war is unwinnable. This is Darren Cronkite. And that's the way it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Agent Provocateur. Go to facebook.com slash Agent Provocateur on Nonsense. I am going to be doing what I can to provide you with quality journalism as this breaking event unfolds. And you can rest assured that I will be hitting you with what this lapdog press tries desperately to avoid. That's the way things are in this world of thought, crime, and rebellion. Over and out, America. So let's talk a little bit about Derek. Now this show is, uh, it, it lives on Netflix and second season right now. Um, <clears throat> it's sort of a mockumentary by Ricky Gervais. So if you like Ricky Gervais, uh, his comedy, 
this is not really it <laughs> at all. And I started watching it because I do enjoy Ricky, Ricky Gervais uh, stand up quite a bit, and I, I wasn't sure what this was going to be like. But it is, you know, it does have the uh, that feel of the mockumentary, like his original Office British Office series was The Office. Um, and this, the first season stars uh, Carl Pilkington. Pilkington. <laughs> I can't even fucking talk. I haven't even had anything to drink either. How, how crazy is that? Um, Kerry Goodliam, Goodleman and David Earl. And it is definitely British, uh, the humor and set and everything. So the entire show is based around this character, Derek, played by Ricky Gervais, who uh, some in the media have said he's autistic, but Ricky Gervais says there's nothing intellectually wrong with him, even though he plays them as if he he's some sort of... Uh, child mind. And I say that because he is um, selfless, caring, loving, uh, and altogether pretty much everything I despise in humanity. <laughs> like, I, I really, really don't enjoy his character at all. Um, he is every ounce of victim, and I, I despise that in humanity. And so I don't really enjoy the fact that they sort of champion that in this series but what is good about this series and this is probably a little bit more telling about me as a human being and the way my fucked up brain works um and, and let me take a step back here really quick i like to watch a range of shows I, I don't just like action or adventure or drama or horror or whatever i like to you know i'm a human being and i like to champion the span of emotions that we are all um you know, as emotional creatures, kind of at the mercy of a lot of the time. And what I love about this series, Derek, is that it is fucking depressing. <laughs> like, it really genuinely brings you down. Like, and I don't know if it's supposed to be. I mean, there are supposed to be, like, heartwarming moments in the series and, you know, sort of touching, thoughtful moments. But this entire show seriously makes me sad and depressed and it makes me feel so low and I, I, maybe a masochist here but i like that sometimes like i i genuinely like my wife refuses to watch this show with me because it is so goddamn depressing it is so fucking sad even when they're not trying to be it's just it the way the music score in the background the the dialogue the just the atmosphere because they're working in an old folks home and there's death and loss all around filled with a cast of literal losers that are in zero control of their own lives and just sort of at the mercy of whatever new societal wind comes a blowing uh so it, as a satanist you just look down on this entire cast and maybe that's part of it because i feel like this is what a lot of humanity aspires to is some of the traits inside Derek uh, the character Derek that I just despise and hate so much but the show just brings you so down they they focus so much on some really horrible uh, notions like loss um, isolation um, pain that for the masochist in me, I, I can't get enough of. So it's it's one of those weird things where you're watching this show and you're just like, what a fucking... Like, the jokes aren't even really that great when they come around. It's not supposed to be a comedy, even though there are some elements in it that are, that are kind of funny. 
but it's really not like that. It's it's very much this sad, depressing show. <laughs> so, I mean, I would absolutely recommend it to you if you like, from time to time, feeling really low and just feeling really sad. Because uh, I, 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 honestly, I genuinely do like to feel fucking down. I mean, that's part of the reason why I love blues. Um, it's part of the reason I, I just like to, you know, turn off the lights and listen to some jazz from time to time. I like to, I like to be just at the bottom of the barrel as much as I'd like to be at the very top, you know, from time to time. So having that full experience and range, I think, um, is essential as human beings. Here's something I've never understood is that people shy away from the things that make them sad. Like sadness is a really good emotion. Like it, if you can lose yourself in it, uh, with a sense in, and this sounds really absurd, lose yourself in sadness with a sense of awareness. Yeah. Like that makes any sense. But if you can do that, uh, when you are in times of genuine sorrow, uh, you can have a little bit of awareness. So, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, I could be just looking back and saying, well, in hindsight, this is a good explanation of why I like to be sad from time to time. Um, but you know, I mean, in, I always like the, that idea that how can you really know if you're happy unless you've lost that thing? And then in hindsight, you can say, wow, you know what? I don't have whatever that was anymore. And that's how great it felt. So it, it's hard to know the true extremes of human emotion if you've never tested them or if you've never uh, been put in a position to experience them. Loss is, uh, as a human being, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Like it sucks in the middle of it and it hurts so much, but that's what it means to be a human being. Our, our lifespans are so short and we are at such a mercy of the universe. As, as Satanists, we like to pretend we have much more control than we actually do, which makes us feel good. But the reality is we're really at the mercy of our environment, wherever that is. And we can make adjustments, course corrections. We can influence, but dramatically changing everyone around you is pretty much, and, and nature in your environment is pretty much not going to happen. You can just sort of adjust your own life and, and, and uh, a little bit of the fringe of other people's. Uh, perceptions and behaviors that interact with you on a regular basis. Um, and so it's nice to be able to, and maybe it's just an acceptance thing, you know, I, and maybe that's what it comes down to why I like this, is that it's easy to, and I, I was touching on this earlier and I never actually got there, it's easy to say, well, I don't like feeling this way and so I'm going to avoid shows like that. I don't, I don't want to feel that, um, a vicarious sense of love because maybe I've lost it or I don't want to feel that vicarious sense of sorrow through this this movie or this this show um, because I've I felt it before and I don't want to relive it I love reliving it because it, it it's a way for me to remember those experiences and it is those very experiences at the height of emotion that really define who and what we are and how we respond to the environmental and emotional stimulus around us 
that is telling of what type of a human being you are. And so I, I like to just drown myself from time to time in uh, sappiness or in sorrow or in excitement and adventure and in whatever it is. Uh, just as um, not only as, as a way of, of reminding myself that these are wonderful experiences of what it means to be a human being, but also to keep tabs on those events or individuals that spawned those extremes of emotion. It's re it doesn't make sense when I'm saying it out loud, and I'm hoping that I'm coming through clearly here, but it's such a huge part of, of, of keeping those flames alive. So whenever I get, whenever I see a show about someone losing a friend, a close friend, like, I, I don't know if anyone ever read the, the children's book when they were a kid, Bridge to Terabithia, they made a movie about it. And I lost my shit in the theater when I took my kids to see that movie because it reminded me of losing my best friend. And it's those extremes that I, I like to revisit because it, it it puts me back in that place and it puts me back in touch with the essence of my friends that no longer exist anymore. You know, like I get to experience them because my, I am emotionally brought back to that time and it's sad and it hurts, but it feels good too. like it, in a weird way. It just feels really good to be able to experience that. And I know a lot of there's a lot of machismo type guys that are like, oh, you fucking pussy, you know, cry into a fucking movie. Well, I, I give a fuck what you think, one. But two, I would say that I'm more of a human being than you are. You are hiding from your emotions, and I am accepting and embracing them. And it's not like I walk down the street <laughs> screaming and bawling. Uh, you know, there's time and a place here. So <laughs> that was a long way away from Derek the TV series. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you if you enjoyed your vase, this is very much a character performance for him. Uh, he, he does an okay job. The writing is okay. But really, what stands out about this entire series on Netflix, what really makes it worthwhile are those emotional experiences and, and it, the way that it brings you down. <laughs> Even when I say it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and if you dig that sort of thing, you will absolutely dig Derek. And uh, at least you should check it out, because it may not be your cup of tea. And the first episode wasn't mine, and but for some reason, because I like Gervais, I was sat through the second and the third episode, and then the first season, and it really just drug me down. I mean, there's a lot of parallels. I, I mean, that here, you know, sort of the, the awareness side of things. We all like to pretend that we're special and individual and different, but when it comes to human experience, we literally all have that in common. Like, you can't have a different sense of loss than someone else who's lost. Like, so in, in a show, when you experience it through the character, you can identify with that and it will take you to that place. Um, you know, Derek, and this is, I don't want to do any spoilers because it is. If you do share that experience, it will bring you down. But at the very end of the series, I connected directly with the character uh, for this one little event, and it it meant so much to me to go back to that place because up until watching those last, I think, one or two episodes, I'd forgotten. I had forgotten about the emotions that I was feeling when that happened and some of the experiences. And watching that show put me right back there, and it 
did hurt, you know, and, and it's weird because when you, when you get to those places, you're not even watching the show. You're just reliving your own life. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a way to time travel. It's a bit of a way to reconnect with old experience and, and feeling. Uh, and I think that as a human being, to be a healthy and happy human being, you need to really, you know, run the gamut and accept the sorrow and accept the excitement and happiness and accept the pain that we are all going to share by nature of being human beings living where we do in the ways that we do. So uh, good stuff if you're into it, and I definitely recommend it. And I think, um, well, let's do let's do a little Adam's Road Rage, and then uh, I think that'll be it. All right, Adam's Road Rage. Welcome to another edition of Adam's Road Rage. I've got this, I had this complaint. So, uh, so I had the people come and, and build our bathroom and that was, that was an ordeal in and of itself. Here's one thing I don't understand. If you're a contractor and you quote a certain price or you say that it'll be done by this time and you don't come through and it, like it, that period of time passes how do you ever expect to fucking get hired again? Like, my, I have a lot of work that I need done in my house that I don't have time to do myself. And so I am going to hire someone. And so I try you out. You say it'll be done at this time for this much, and you don't need that. You know that I have more work because we had a goddamn conversation about it. So why, why the fuck don't you meet? You know I will give you more work. You know I will. Why don't you meet the fucking commitment you make? Because you hate money? You hate working for money? I, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So, I mean, obviously, you know, they, they charge more than they say they're going to charge. And so I have to fucking fight with them for weeks, literally weeks, chasing down money that they, in essence, fucking stole from me. Finally get it back. Uh, but that's not the purpose of the rent. So that was... A rant on a rent. So uh, they have this trailer in my front yard with tons of shit strewn about uh, that they said, okay, well, as soon as we're done, we're going to send uh, our driver to come pick up said trailer, and that will be tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and goes. Trailer's still sitting there. I don't really care. It's not in my way, even though it's on my property, and I kind of want it gone, but it's not the end of the world. I, I can drive around. It's a big fucking deal. Day two, still there. Day three, I call them. Hey, did you guys forget your trailer? Like this, I understand the garbage on the trailer. You may not give a fuck about, but it's a trailer. That's like just under a grand worth of equipment. Don't you want to pick up your trailer? Like, oh yeah, we're, it's coming. The, the guy's coming. Uh, how about we, we get your phone number one more time because, you know, you obviously don't save it from the billing or the entire, you know, setup of the job or, or the constant weeks of me calling back and forth trying to get my goddamn money from you, why would you save my fucking phone number? So let's get your phone number one more time. I'll pass that on to the driver. And if he has any questions, he'll give you a call. But you know, we, we're going to set it up. We know he should have been there two days ago. We're going to set it up. He's going to come today and we'll get it taken care of. No problem. So I get a call. Hey, uh, what, what, what's your address one more time? Because... <laughs> 
because you haven't been driving to my house for the past fucking month fixing my goddamn house. Like, how do you not know my address? So, okay. So you don't know my fucking address. I give him the address again. Uh, this is where your property is. On my property, come get your property. Uh, so the driver calls me, hey, I can't find your house. And here's something I don't understand. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. It's literally laid out in a mathematical grid going from this place called Temple Square in the center of Salt Lake, and it goes one, two, three, four, five, and so on in literally every direction. So if it's 500 north, you know it's five blocks north of Temple Square. If it's 500 south, it's five blocks south of Temple Square, and so on and so forth, exponentially out into the valley. So if you can do basic fucking math, you cannot get lost in Salt Lake. It's impossible. You cannot if you know basic fundamentals of math that after two is three. I mean, you, you can't. And I always love this, too. They're like, well, I'm, I'm at the grid coordinates. Uh, okay, so what coordinates are you at? Uh, I'm at X east. It's like, okay, well, you're literally on the other side of the valley because I told you and I told your people that I'm on the west. Not only did I tell them that, they've been to my house fucking fixing it. So how do you give a, How does that message get missed? You're on the east side. I'm on the west side. Your property's on the west side, but you just decide to go to the east. Okay, so I understand maybe there's a, a, a cross of confusion. So I say, you need to head west. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Hey, and it, have, I don't, you don't have to navigate the desert with a fucking compass. It's, it's west. The sun sets there. How do you not know where fucking west is? Even if you are in, in literally the sun is right above you. And you are looking around like, I, I don't know west. How can this pot? You're in Salt Lake. There's literally a mountain range. It's <laughs> so unbelievable. There's a mountain range that runs north to south the entirety of our state. The entirety of the state. North to south. So you know that mountains are always on the east side. So if I say my house is west of you, then just drive the opposite direction of the big ass mountain range that is right fucking next to you. Like that's all you have to do. Drive away from the fucking mountains. How dumb can you fucking... And this is the driver. Like they hired him to navigate the valley. He doesn't even know west. Like how do you... You don't fucking know west. How do you not know west? So I start using landmarks. Okay, go to I-15, get off on this exit, and do this. He's like, okay, got it, done. I get off the phone, I'm a little flustered, a little shocked that the driver doesn't know east from fucking west, or the, the mathematical layout of our fucking gridded city, but okay, some people are just fucking retarded, let it lie. He calls me five more fucking times. Five more fucking times, I'm at the address, I don't see the trailer, I don't see your house. Uh, okay, so I verify that he's at the correct grid coordinates, 
And he says, yes, he is. He's looking at the road signs and they're exactly where my house is. I, how can you not? My house is literally the only house on the street with solar panels on it. It is the only house on the street with a face on the gigantic fucking pine tree. Literally the only house with a pine tree in the front yard. And the only house with a face right next to the fucking front door, this mask. You, do, you can't find it. But hey, wait, there's also a giant fucking trailer in front of your fucking trailer that you're supposed to be picking up in front of my fucking, you don't fucking see it. How do you not see a gigantic pile? And so I'm freaking the fuck out of this jackass on my phone trying to explain what my house looks like. And he's like, oh, wait, I'm sitting in front of I'm sitting in front of the fucking house. You don't fucking... Can you not see? Do you have eyes in your fucking head? So, that was my day. That was yours. Alright, and that... <laughs> that is gonna do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you guys don't want to hear that kind of stuff, like just me ranting, let me know. <laughs> shoot me a... Uh, shoot me a communique. <laughs> at info at 9centspodcast.com. And also let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have about 9 cents or any of the segments. Uh, tell me what you think about the satanic tradition. I will pass it on absolutely. Uh, you can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Download the show Mondays via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 cents via iTunes by searching 9 cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. Got a couple more ratings. Thank you very much for that. If you'd like to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com and read the print version that you purchased and didn't illegally steal online of the Satanic Bible. The only way this podcast is going to live, people, is if you share it, is if you tell a friend. Share 9 cents with your friends, your enemies, hell, your grandmother. Let's build this podcast together. Help spread the word. And once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week... Hail Satan!